Fair Use Notice. This channel may make use of copyrighted material, the use of which has not always been specifically authorized by the copyright owner. This constitutes a fair use of any such copyrighted material as provided for in Section 107 of the U.S. Copyright Law. In accordance with Title 17 U.S.C. Section 107, the material on this channel is offered is offered publicly and without profit to the public users of the internet for comment and nonprofit educational and informational purposes. Copyright disclaimer under Section 107 of the Copyright Act 1976, allowance is made for fair use for purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarships, and research. Fair use is a use permitted. No copyrights is are claimed. The content is broadcast for study, research, and educational purposes. The broadcaster gains no profit from broadcasted content, so it falls under fair use guidelines, www.copyright.gov. And we'll be right back. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of my fabulous sponsors or advertisers. Any content provided by our bloggers or authors are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. This disclaimer was provided by DisclaimerTemplate.com. Hello, my lovely loyal listeners. This is just Miss Rose. I am driving down the emotional lane as usual. However, the current events have overwhelmed my senses. So I'm going to literally park on the side of the road right now. We're parked on the side. We are not driving down over emotional roads. We are just Stopped at the side of the road. We're at, matter of fact, we're not even at the side of the road. We are at a rest stop, y'all. We done pulled up. I'm not driving another second. I am going to pull up into this rest stop and we are going to read this article. Okay? I love you for listening. Go inside, get some popcorn, get something to drink, do whatever. We'll be right back. It's time for Dictionary Definition of the Day. Today's Dictionary Definition Word of the Day brought to you by Oxford Languages is indict. It's a verb, North American, formally accused of or charge with a serious crime. Indict. And we'll be right back.
Warning. Some listeners may find the following content highly disturbing and controversial. Listener discretion is advised. All right, my lovely loyal listeners, we are on CNN.com, and this article is entitled, A Timeline of the Killing of Ahmaud Arbery and the Case Against Three Men Accused of His Murder, by Dakin and Dunn, CNN, updated 1045 Eastern Time, Thursday, November 4th, 2021. At first, the killing of Ahmaud Arbery in February 2020 went largely went largely unnoticed outside the South Georgia community where the 25-year-old lived and died just weeks before the country was gripped by the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. It wasn't until a video of the shooting surfaced May 5, 2020, that the black man's death drew nationwide attention, prompting outrage and protests. Harbingers harbingers of the demonstrations against racial injustice that would follow that summer after the May 25, 2020 murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Three white men are now set to stand trial for Arbery's murder. Gregory McMichael, his son Travis McMichael, and William Roddy Bryan Jr. All three have pleaded not guilty and their attorneys Excuse me. And their attorneys have previously said their clients committed no wrongdoing. With their trial getting underway, here's a timeline of the case. February 23, 2020. Ahmad Aubrey is fatally shot. Aubrey was shot dead February 23, 2020, in a confrontation with Travis and Gregory McMichael in the neighborhood of. St- Satilla Shores Shores outside the city of Brunswick in Georgia's low country. Arbery was on a jog, something he was known to do, according to those who knew him, when the McMichaels grabbed their guns and pursued Arbery. Gregory McMichael, a former police officer and investigator in the, lo- in the local district attorney's office, later told police Arbery and his son had struggled over his son's shotgun and that Travis McMichael shot Arbery after the latter attacked him, according to the initial police report. The men claimed to be... Oh, Lord, have mercy, y'all. The men claimed to be conducting a citizen's arrest of Arbery. Georgia overhauled its citizen's arrest statute after Arbery's killing. A third man, William Roddy Bryan, had also joined the pursuit and recorded the shooting on his cell phone. But it would be, but it would be more than 10 weeks until a 36-second video showing the shooting which surfaced, spurring calls for the McMichael's arrests. 
Gregory McMichael told police he and his son had pursued Aubrey because they suspected he was responsible for a string of recent purported burglaries in the neighborhood. A Glenn County police spokesperson later said there had only been one burglary, a gun stolen from an unlocked vehicle in front of the McMichaels' home, reported in more than seven weeks it wait, reported in more than seven weeks prior to the shooting. Additionally, McMichael said he saw Aubrey inside a home under construction. Aubrey was seen entering the home in surveillance video at the site, but the owner of the home told CNN he did not see Aubrey commit any crime the day of the shooting. Other surveillance videos showed multiple people had trespassed at the home under construction. February 22, 2020. Attorney General's Office learns Brunswick's Judicial Circuit District Attorney recusing herself. The day after the, after the shooting, Brunswick Judicial Circuit District Attorney Jackie Johnson recused herself from the case, citing Gregory McMichael's position as a former investigator in her office. According to the Georgia Attorney General Chris Carr's office, it wasn't until February 27th that the Attorney General's office received a letter from Johnson requesting the appointment of a new prosecutor. Jackson was indicted and arrested last month for her alleged actions on charges of violation of oath of a public officer and obstruction of a police officer, according to a release from the AG's office. She has previously denied wrongdoing. The case was then taken over by District Attorney of the Waycross Judicial Judicial Circuit, George Burnhill. April 7, 2020, second prosecutor recuses himself, lays out a defense of the McMichaels. The Attorney General's office would later say it received a letter from Burnhill on April 7, informing the office of his own conflict of interest. His son worked in Johnson's office and had previously worked with Gregory McMichael on a previous prosecution of Arbery. Barnhill learned of this conflict soon after he was appointed to the case, the AG's office said, but he only asked to relinquish the case in early April at the request of Arbery's mother. However, per the AG's office, Barnhill's letter failed to disclose he had been involved in the case before he was formally appointed to it. He had given the Glenn County Police Department an initial opinion the day after Arbery's death, saying he did not see grounds for the arrest of the men involved. Byron Hill reiterated his opinion in a letter to police April 2nd, saying he believed the McMichael's actions were perfectly legal. April 13, 2020, the case is transferred to a third prosecutor. After receiving Barnhill's letter, the Attorney General's office appointed Atlantic Judicial Circuit District Attorney Tom Durden to the case. May 5, 2020, video of the shooting surfaces. It wasn't until more than two months after Arbery's death that the case took on new life when the video of the shooting emerged.
The 36-second video begins with Arbery jogging down the middle of the street toward a pickup truck stopped in the road. Gregory McMichaels, McMichael is in the bed of the truck while his son is standing near the driver's side door with a shotgun. Arbery approaches and a physical confrontation occurs between him and Travis McMichael. A shot goes off and the two disappear off the left side of the video's frame. A second shot is heard as the men struggle off camera and when they come back into view both are grappling with the shotgun. Arbery appears to throw a punch at Travis McMichael as a third gunshot is heard and blood appears on Arbery's t-shirt before he stumbles and falls in the middle of the two-lane road. The video, compounded with the fact no one had been arrested, sparked nationwide outrage. The same day, Durden, the new prosecutor, formally requested an investigation into the case by the GBI, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, the agency said. That case was begun the next day. May 7, 2020, the McMichaels are arrested. Two days after the video surfaced, Gregory and Travis McMichael were arrested on charges of murder and aggravated assault. Asked why the GBI had so swiftly arrested the McMichaels when local authorities failed to do so for weeks, GBI Director Vic Reynolds said he couldn't speak to the actions of other agencies. I'm very comfortable in telling you, he said, that there's more than significant probable cause in this case for felony murder. May 10th, 2020, Georgia's AG requests federal investigation. Attorney General Carr requested an investigation by the U.S. Department of Justice on May 10, 2020, saying in a statement, officials were committed to a complete and transparent review of how the Ahmad Arbery case was handled from the outset. The request included, but is not limited to, investigation of the communications and discussions by and between the Office of the District of Attorney of the Brunswick Judicial, Judicial Circuit and the Office of the District Attorney of the Waycross Judicial Circuit related to this case. And we'll be right back. May 11th, 2020, a fourth prosecutor takes over. The following day, the AG's office requested the GBI investigate possible prosecutorial misconduct by the officers of the district attorneys of the Brunswick and Waycross Judicial Circuits. That same day, AG Carr announced a fourth prosecutor, Cobb County District Attorney Joyette Holmes would leave the case after Durden had asked to step down due to a lack of sufficient resources. May 21, 2020, Brian is arrested. Two weeks after the McMichael's arrest, the GBI arrested Brian on charges of felony murder and criminal attempt to commit false imprisonment. 
His arrest came after his attorney had spent the previous days maintaining his client's innocence, insisting Brian had committed no wrongdoing. June 4, 2020. Travis McMichael used racial slur after shooting Arbery, GBI agent testifies. GBI assistant special agent in charge, Richard Dial laid out details of Arbery's last moments in a preliminary hearing against the three suspects on June 4, 2020, including the revelation that Brian had told investigators he heard Travis McMichael use the N-word after shooting Arbery dead. During the hearing, which lasted about seven hours, Dial said there were numerous times Travis McMichael used racial slurs on social media and in messaging services. Brian also had several messages on him on his phone that included racial terms, Dial said. Dial outlined the events that led to the shooting, saying Arbery had tried to leave the neighborhood but was forced back in by the McMichaels and said Brian actually struck Arbery with his car. Asked if he believed Travis McMichael could have been acting in self-defense, Dial said the opposite was true. I believe Mr. Arbery was being pursued and he ran till he couldn't run anymore, and it was turn his back to a man with a shotgun or fight with his bare hands against the man with the shotgun, the GBI agent said. June 24, 2020, all three suspects indicted on murder charges. On June 24, 2020, Four months after the shooting, a Glen County grand jury indicted Gregory and Travis McMichael and Roddy Bryant on malice and felony murder charges in Arbery's death, District Attorney Holmes announced. The McMichaels faced several other charges, including aggravated assault, false imprisonment, and criminal attempt to commit false imprisonment per the indictment. Brian also faces a charge of criminal attempt to commit false imprisonment. July 17, 2020. Suspects plead not guilty. All three plead not guilty to the charges they face in mid-July 2020. A judge also denied bond for Brian, citing his potential flight risk, lack of employment, and ongoing investigations. November 13, 2020, bond denied for the McMichaels. A judge on November 13, 2020, denied bond for the McMichaels following a two-day hearing in which prosecutors said Gregory McMichael had called Johnson from the scene of the shooting in in an attempt to influence and obstruct the investigation. Prosecutors played a voicemail in court Gregory McMichael left his former boss telling her he'd been involved in a shooting and I need some advice right away. Prosecutor Jesse Evans said the phone call was evidence Gregory McMichael had intended to use his connections in law enforcement to influence the case from its outset, though he did not argue the call had its intended effect. April 28, 2021 
suspects are indicted on federal hate crime charges. In late April, federal prosecutors announced a grand jury had indicted the McMichaels and Bryan on hate crime and kidnapping charges. Each were charged with one count of interference with rights and one count of attempted kidnapping, a a release by the Department of Justice said, adding all three had used force and threats of force to intimidate and interfere with Arbery's right to use a public street because of his race. The release added Gregory and Travis McMichael were also charged with using a firearm in relation to a crime of violence. May 11, 2021, suspects plead not guilty in federal court. The McMichaels and Brian all plead not guilty to the federal charges in a hearing May 11th. They remain in state custody and the federal trial is set to begin February 2022. October 18, 2021, jury selection begins. Jury selection for the state trial of the McMichaels and Brian begins in Glenn County, Georgia on Monday, October 18th. November 3rd, 2021, a jury is seated. It took two and a half weeks for the jury selection process to be completed. Ultimately, a panel of 12 people, 11 white jurors and one black juror, was seated on Wednesday, November 3rd. At the conclusion of the process, prosecutors for the state accused defense attorneys of disproportionately striking qualified black jurors and basing some of their strikes on race. While Judge Timothy Walmsley allowed the case to go forward, ruling there were valid reasons for the defense to strike potential jurors, he said the court found that there appears to be intentional discrimination on the part of the defense. Okay? And that, you guys, is the end of that article. And that is what is on my mind right now. And this article was entitled, A Timeline of the Killing of Ahmaud Arbery and the Case Against Three Men Accused of His Murder. Okay, that's CNN.com. And that was by Dakin and Don. And we'll be right back. I love you for listening. All right, you guys, we are on CNN.com. Yes, I said CNN.com. Judge, this article is entitled, Judge Says There Appears to Be Intentional Discrimination in Arbery Jury Selection, but Allows Trial to Move Forward with One Black Juror. This was written by Devon M. Sayers, Out to Spells, and Christina Maxorius, CNN, updated 10.18 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, Thursday, November 11th, 2021. And today, you guys, is Friday, in case I didn't mention it. It's Friday, November 12th. All right. After a long and contentious jury selection process in a coastal Georgia county in preparation for the trial of for Ahmad Arbery's killing, a panel of 12 people was chosen Wednesday, consisting of one black member and 11 white members. 
The jury was selected after a two and a half week selection process that ended with prosecutors for the state accusing defense attorneys of disproportionately striking qualified black jurors as and basing some of their strikes on race. Judge Timothy Walmsley said the defense appeared to be discriminatory in selecting the jury, but that the case could go forward. This court has found that there appears to be intentional discrimination, Walmsley said Wednesday. The court heard arguments for more than two hours about why defense struck the potential jurors before Walmsley ultimately denied the state's motion and ruled there were valid reasons beyond race for why the jurors were dismissed. <coughs> Bullshit. One of the challenges that I think counsel recognized in this case is the racial overtones in the case. This is sort of the continuation of a conversation that I think will continue for a long time with respect to this case, the judge said, but added that in Georgia, all the defense needs to do is provide that legitimate, non-discriminatory, clear, reasonably specific, and related reason for why they struck a juror, and he said the defense met that burden. In Glenn County, where the trial is taking place, more than 26% of the 85,000 residents are black, and about 69% are white, according to 2019 data from the U.S. Census Bureau. Of the 16 total jurors selected, including the four alternates, five are men and 11 are women, according to the pool reporter inside the courtroom. Wanda Cooper-Jones, Arbery's mother, said as she left the courthouse Wednesday, she was shocked there was only one black juror. I mean, that was devastating, she said. The jurors must decide whether Gregory McMichael and his son, Travis McMichael, along with their neighbor, William Roddy Bryan Jr., are guilty of malice and felony murder. They have pleaded not guilty. The defendants also face charges of aggravated assault, false imprisonment, and criminal attempt to commit false imprisonment. Lee Merritt, an attorney for Arbery's family, wrote on Twitter about the number of black potential jurors who remained, saying in a post, only one of the 16 potential jurors is African American. Jason Sheffield, an attorney for Travis McMichaels, called the selection process exhaustive, but said he was pleased with the outcome and felt the selected jurors would be fair. We are very pleased that we have been able to to select now 16 members of this community, Sheffield said as he exited the courthouse, where this community can now decide the pending issues of this indictment, and we truly believe that they will do so fairly and in keeping with what we all understand about, I mean, what we all understand justice 
to be about. The selection process was a long one. Arbery's killing sparked national outrage after a video of his shooting was made public. The 25-year-old black man was out for a jog in Brunswick on February 23, 2020, when he was fatally shot. The McMichaels said they were conducting a citizen's arrest on Arbery, whom they suspected of burglary, and that Travis McMichael shot him with a shotgun in self-defense. Brian, who recorded the video, hit Arbery with his truck after he joined the McMichaels in chasing Arbery. A Georgia Bureau of Investigation agent has testified. It wasn't until video of the shooting surfaced that the men were arrested. Finding people to sit on the panel that will deliver the verdicts was a challenging and lengthy process that the judge himself seemed to grow frustrated with last month. From the roughly 1,000 people who were summoned as part of the jury selection pool, fewer than half turned up. No official reason was given for the low out the low turnout, but among those who did come, many said they had already formed strong opinions about the case, knew the defendants, or were scared to sit were or were scared to sit, pointing to the potential consequences the outcomes of the case could have on the Glen County community. I think it would be naive to think there couldn't be real-world repercussions, one woman told attorneys last month in the early days of the selection process. The jury will be impaneled just before opening statements. The judge told jurors to report Friday morning at 9 a.m. Not enough Bubba men, defense attorney said. Defense attorneys previously expressed concern. Defense attorneys previously expressed concern over not only how many people didn't show, but also who was missing among those who did. It would appear that white males born in the South, over 40 years of age, without four-year college degrees, sometimes euphemistically known as Bubba or six or Joe Sixpack, seemed to be significantly underrepresented. Defense attorney Kevin Gow, who represents Brian, told the court Friday. Without meaning to be stereotypical in any way, I do think there is a real question in this case whether that demographic is underrepresented in this jury pool, Gold said. And if it is, then we have a problem with that. Sheffield, the attorney for Travis McMichael, brought up demographics again this week, stressing that the low turnout of people during the jury selection process meant the pool didn't fairly reflect the accused in this case, where the accused can't look across the courtroom and see persons that are similarly situated to themselves. But a jury needs to be representative of only race and gender, not socioeconomic background, said CNN legal analyst Paige Pate, or Pate. There usually tends to be diversity of economic backgrounds among those who are summoned, Pate said. Participation in the jury pool is important, but only so much to establish diversity of race and perhaps gender, but not Bubba background, whatever that may be, Pate said. 
I've represented doctors who have gone on trial. Now, was my jury made up of a bunch of doctors? Of course not. Even if there were no bubbas, as long as the lawyers are not removing people solely because of race, there's really no problem, Pate said. You have no legal right to a bubba-rich jury pool. CNN's Martin Savage, Eric Feigl, and Angela Batterjes contributed to this report. And once again, that was CNN.com, and this article was entitled, Judge Says There Appears to Be Intentional Discrimination in Arbery Jury Selection, but Allows Trial to Move Forward with One Black Juror. And we'll be right back after this brief pause for the cause. Right, you guys, we are back and we are on Reuters.com and this article is entitled Police Showed Defendants Video of Ahmaud Arbery Before Shooting Georgia Jury Hears by Jonathan Allen and this was okay, hold on. November 12th, 2021 12.05 p.m. Eastern Standard Time last updated nine minutes ago. All right. Brunswick, Georgia, November 12th, Reuters. Two white men on on trial in the killing of Ahmaud Arbery were shown surveillance video of the black man walking around a half-built house in their southern Georgia neighborhood 12 days before they chased and shot him, a jury heard on Friday. Nobody seems to know who this kid is or where he's coming from. Robert Rash, a Glenn County police officer, told the two men, Gregory McMichael and his son, Travis McMichael, on the night of February 11, 2020, after showing them the clips according to body-worn camera video played in court. The two McMichaels and their neighbor, William Roddy Bryan, have pleaded not guilty to murder, aggravated assault, and false imprisonment. They face life in prison if convicted of murder at the trial in a Georgia courthouse. The men say they thought Arbery might have been. Okay, y'all, my phone acting up again. Hold on. The men say they thought Arbery might have been the same man caught on camera in the half-built house when he ran through Satella Shores, a suburb of the small coastal city of Brunswick on February 23rd, 2020. They pursued him in pickup trucks for several minutes before the younger McMichael pointed a shotgun and fired as Arbery ran toward him and reached toward the weapon. Their lawyers say this was justified self-defense, while prosecutors say the men assumed the worst about a black man out for an afternoon jog. Here are some important moments from the sixth day of witness testimony in Glenn County Superior Court. Robert Rash, Glenn County Police Officer. Arbery was first captured on security cameras going into the house under construction in Satilla Shores on the night of October 25, 2019. Larry English, the property owner, wanted police to identify the man in the videos and tell him not to enter the property again. Arbery was recorded again walking around the unfenced construction site on November 18, 2019. 
though once again nothing was taken that day according to English. Rash told the jury he would show screenshots of the video to people as he made his rounds, but no one was ever able to identify him. On December 20, 2019, Rash saw Greg McMichael, whom he knew from McMichael's old job as an investigator from the local district office. Uh, t- Wait a minute. On December 20, 2019, Rash saw Greg McMichael, whom he knew from McMichael's old job as an investigator for the local district attorney in front of his house. I talked to him in reference to the unidentified black male, Rash said. McMichael asked the officer to give his cell phone number to English. Rash said he did this because McMichael had the training and experience to be a good witness for police if the man returned. Prosecutor Linda Dunikowski asked if Rash was deputizing McMichael. Rash said no. So you wanted him to be a witness to get this guy identified? Dunikowski asked. Yes, Rash said. Prosecutors are seeking to rebuke a defense argument that the men were trying to make a citizen's arrest on Arbery under a now-repealed Georgia law. That law requires there to be reasonable belief, reasonable belief that someone is fleeing from a serious felony crime they just committed. On the night of February 11th, neighbors saw Arbery again on the property and Travis McMichael rushed over with his gun and saw Arbery briefly in his car headlights. Rash soon arrived on the scene and played for the McMichaels some of the videos English had sent to his cell phone. This guy's always on foot. Nobody in the neighborhood knows who he is. Rash tells the McMichaels, according to video from his body-worn camera. He tells them that English has only ever seen Arbery nosing around. He hasn't seen him actually take anything, Rash says. It's criminal trespassing, Gregory McMichael replies. Criminal trespass is a misdemeanor in Georgia's law. Yeah, yeah, at the very least, Rash agrees. This story has been refiled to correct spelling of Robert Rash's name from Nash in paragraphs 9 through 20. Reporting by Jonathan Allen and Rich McKay. Editing by Ross Colvin and Howard Gollard. Okay? And that's the end of that article, you guys. And that's from today, November 12, 2021. Police showed defendant's video of Ahmad Arbery before shooting Georgia Jury hears okay now this whole freaking case is bothering me y'all it's bothering the crap out of me and we'll be right back after this brief pause for the cause i love you for listening all right my lovely loyal listeners we are back and we are on clevelandclinic.org And this article was written July 9th, 2021. It's under their mental health tab. Is your love of true crime impacting your mental health? From podcasts to documentaries to nonfiction books, it seems like the true crime genre is bigger than ever these days. 
but how much is too much? It can be all too easy to get lost in the kind of grisly tales that nightmares are made of. And what started out as a hobby born of curiosity can easily take a toll on your mental health. Psychologist Shavana Childs, PhD, explores why people are obsessed with true crime and the psychological effects it can have. Why crime shows are so addicting. People who don't have any interest in true crime stories might think you're a creep for enjoying them. But rest assured that your love of the, mac- of the macrobe doesn't indicate a tendency toward criminal behavior. Instead, Dr. Childs says it's as simple as curiosity. Watching true crime doesn't make you strange or weird, Dr. Childs says. It's human nature to be inquisitive. True crime appeals to us because we get a glimpse into the mind of a real person who has committed a heinous act. Most true crime lovers are fascinated by the likes, by the likes of Jack the Ripper, H.H. H. Holmes, and Ted Bundy out of a deep desire to better understand their unthinkable capacity for cruelty. We want to see how they tick, she says. Why women love true crime. Research shows that true crime stories disproportionately appeal to women. That makes sense, Dr. Childs says, as women are also disproportionately likely to be the victims of crime. We want to watch true crime in part to learn how to avoid being a victim, she says. It can teach us to be prepared in case we're ever in that situation. But there's a darker side, too. The psychological effects of crime shows. Shows that focus on murder and rape can really take you to a bad place, Dr. Childs says. They can help you become more vigilant and aware, but you don't want to become overly reactive to the point where you're not leaving your house, you're not socializing, you're not functioning. And it's not just true crime stories that can impact our psyche. Fictionalized depictions of crime can be just as captivating and have similar impacts. But that doesn't mean you need to stop watching Law & Order SVU or listening to My Favorite Murder if you love them. It means that you should remain vigilant about how they affect you, paying special attention to your reactions. Dr. Childs runs through some of the psychological impacts that crime shows can have and signs that you may need a break. You're scared all the time. I always tell people that too much of anything is a bad thing, Dr. Childs says. And when we watch too much true crime, we start to worry about the what ifs. It can cause us to isolate and to not fully live our lives. If you start to fear, if you start to feel fearful every time you go out, or you sometimes feel too scared to go out at all, that's a sign that your true crime habit is negatively infringing on your everyday life. You feel unsafe at home. Just as crime content can make you feel unsafe out in the world, 
It can also affect how safe you feel in your own home. If you're double checking and rechecking locks and doors, consider whether your true crime habit has started to interfere with your life, Dr. Child says. You're wary of others. When you're constantly consuming stories that reveal the worst parts of humanity, you can start to doubt the humanity of the people around you. In small doses, this can be a good thing. Again, a certain level of true crime intake can teach you survival skills, but too much of it can make you overly suspicious to the point of paranoia. You may find yourself worrying whether the person you're chatting with at the grocery store isn't actually as nice as they seem, Dr. Child says. When you start asking yourself questions like, what if they have dead bodies in their basement? You probably, need, you probably need to take a step back and consider your crime intake. You're anxious all the time. Too much true crime ceases to be about curiosity and starts becoming fear-based instead. When we start to feel worried and afraid all the time, it takes away the fun of it, Dr. Child says. It starts to instill anxiety in us instead. If you feel as though you're constantly on the verge of impeding doom, your true crime habit may have turned a corner into negativity. Other symptoms of anxiety include rapid heartbeat, shallow breathing or hyperventilating, trouble sleeping, and overall feeling of nervousness, restlessness, or tension. How much true how much true crime is too much? Try to pay attention to how you feel when you watch or listen to, to, to crime stories. Are you excited to delve deeper? Or do you feel nervous, anxious, depressed, stressed? Pay attention to any decline in your mood. Like if true crime doesn't feel as good to you as it used to, Dr. Child says, look Two, at how your body responds to the stories. If your heart is racing or you feel tense or anxious or you have moments when you think, oh God, I, can take, I can't take this anymore. Those are all signs. It may not be immediately evident to you that your true crime habit is having a negative impact on you. But stopping to consider how the stories make you feel in the moment can help clue you in to whether you should walk away from them now and try again later. Your body is going to tell you how much is too much, Dr. Child says. You don't need to swear off all your favorite true and fictionalized crime shows forever, but the old adage, everything in moderation, applies. Take a break from true crime. If you're having negative reactions to the stories, it's helpful to take a step back from your habit for the moment. And even if you're not having negative reactions, you can help them, you can help keep them at bay by monitoring your crime intake. Break it up every now and then, Dr. Child suggests. Go listen to music, a comedy, or something else frivolous in between crime stories to keep things from getting too heavy. And that is the conclusion of that article, you guys, from Clevelandclinic.org, Cleveland July 9, 2021. Is your love of true crime impacting your mental 
health. And um, most of the content was provided by psychologist Siobhan Childs, Ph.D., and we'll be right back after this brief pause for the cause. Did I tell you I love you for listening? I love you for listening. Yep, we're still in the rest stop. So if you got to go to the bathroom, go. There's a food court over there in the rest stop. So go get you some food. Because you know this is just Miss Rose. So these episodes will be one hour. All right. I love you. See you in a little bit. All right, my lovely loyal listeners, after all of that, we are now on griefwords.com. This article is entitled, Helping a Homicide Survivor Heal, by Alan D. Wolfett, Ph.D. A friend has experienced the sudden violent death of someone they love. You want to help, but aren't sure how to go about it. This article will guide you in ways to turn your cares and concerns into positive actions. Traumatic and Violent Death Death by homicide creates overwhelming grief for survivors. Their world has been turned upside down. Nothing in life prepares survivors for the reality that someone they love has died a violent death. Murder results in survivors grieving not only the death, but how the person died. A life has been cut short through an act of cruelty. The disregard for human life adds overwhelming feelings of turmoil, distrust, injustice, and helplessness to normal sense of loss and sorrow. Murder and Social Stigma Survivors of murder victims enter into a world that is not understood by most people. A sad reality is that members of a community where a tragic murder has occurred sometimes blame the victims or survivors. Out of a need to protect themselves from their own personal feelings of vulnerability, some people reason that what has happened has to be somebody's fault. This need to place blame is projected in an effort to fight off any thoughts that such a tragedy would ever happen to them. As a result of this fear and misunderstanding, survivors of homicide deaths are often left feeling abandoned at a time when they desperately need unconditional support and understanding. Without a doubt, homicide survivors suffer in a variety of ways. One, because they need to mourn the loss of someone who has died. Two, because they have experienced a sudden traumatic death. And three, because they are often shunned by a society unwilling to enter into the pain of their grief. Allow for numbness. Feeling dazed or numb is a good thing for your friend. This numbness serves a valuable purpose. It gives emotions time to catch up with what the mind has been told. Nothing in one's coping mechanisms prepares survivors for this kind of trauma. Shock is like an anesthetic. It helps create insulation from the reality of the death until your friend is more able to tolerate what he or she doesn't want to believe. 
Don't assume your friend is being strong and taking it well when he or she is really in shock. They may appear strong, but early on in grief, their appearance reflects their numbness and disbelief. However, they need you now and will particularly need you when the shock begins to wear off and reality sets in. Let your friend move at his or her own pace. It is damaging to try to push someone through shock and numbness. By walking with your friend at his or her own pace, you are giving one of life's most precious gifts, yourself. Accept the intensity of the grief. Grief following a murder is always complex. Survivors don't get over it. Instead, with support and understanding, they can come to reconcile themselves to its reality. Don't be surprised by the intensity of their feelings. In light of what has happened, it is only natural that they are in pain. Accept that survivors may be struggling with a multitude of emotions more intense than those experienced after other types of death. Confusion, disorganization, Fear, vulnerability, guilt, or anger are just a few of the emotions survivors may feel. Sometimes these emotions will follow each other within a short period of time, or they may occur simultaneously. And don't be surprised if out of nowhere your friend suddenly experiences surges of grief, even at the most unexpected times. These grief attacks can be frightening and leave them feeling overwhelmed. Be patient, compassionate, and understanding. Don't be frightened by rage. Anger and rage responses might make you a helping friend feel helpless. For survivors, the sense of injustice about the nature of the death turns the normal anger of grief into rage. Remember, anger is not right or wrong, good or bad, appropriate or not appropriate. In fact, rage often relates to a desire to restore things to the way they were before the death. The person to be most concerned about is probably the one who doesn't experience rage. The anger and rage may be directed at the murderer, at God, you, or even at the person who was killed. Your friend may even be frightened by the intensity of his or her own rage. Be willing to listen to what your friend feels without judging him or her. And do not try to diminish the anger, for it is in expressing rage that it begins to lose some of its power. Ultimately, Healthy grief requires that these explosive emotions be expressed, not repressed. Feeling anxious and fearful is normal. Feelings of anxiety, panic, and fear are normal after a murder. Threats to one's feelings of security, of security, threats to one's feelings of security naturally brings out these emotions. The world no longer feels as safe as it once did. 
Fear of what the future holds, fear that more murders might occur, an increased awareness of one's own mortality, feelings of vulnerability about being able to survive without the person, an inability to concentrate and emotional and physical fatigue all serve to heighten anxiety, panic, and fear. Your grieving friend may feel overwhelmed by everyday problems and concerns. Your awareness of these common fears can help you anticipate some of what your friend might talk about with you. Understand the need to ask why. The unanswerable question, but why, naturally comes up for survivors of a traumatic, violent death. Your friend is searching to understand how something like this could happen. Understand that this is a normal question to ask in a very abnormal situation. Your friend probably doesn't want you to try to answer the why question. He or she often realizes there is no rational explanation for the murder, yet still needs to ask the question. While you can't provide explanations for what happened, you can stand beside your friend as he or she searches for meaning. Be compassionate. Give your friend permission to express his or her feelings without fear of criticism. Learn from your friend. Don't instruct or set expectations about how he or she should respond. Never say, I know just how you feel. You don't. Allow your friend to experience all the hurt, sorrow, and pain that he or she is feeling at the time. Enter into your friend's feelings, but never try to take them away. And recognize tears are a natural and appropriate expression of the pain associated with the death. Avoid cliches. Cliches, though they are often intended to diminish the pain of loss, can actually cause more pain for a grieving friend. Comments like, you are holding up so well. Time will heal all wounds. Or think of all you still have to be thankful for are not constructive. Instead, they hurt and make a friend's journey through grief more difficult. And we'll be right back. Listen to questions about faith. If you allow them, homicide survivors will teach you about their feelings regarding faith and spirituality. Many survivors will express doubt about beliefs they held before the murder. If they cannot doubt, their faith will have little meaning. Whatever you do, don't tell your friend that the murder was God's will. Also, don't tell your friend to forgive the murderer. No matter their spiritual convictions, survivors of homicide should not be made to feel obligated to forgive someone who killed their loved one. Don't push your friend to forgive simply to satisfy your needs. Be aware of support groups. Support groups are one of the best ways to help survivors of traumatic deaths. In a group, Survivors can connect with other people who share their experience. 
They are allowed and encouraged to tell their stories as much and as often as they like. Do be aware that you should not push survivors to attend a group if they are not ready. We know that if they find a group unhelpful because they aren't ready to share their grief in this way, they may be hesitant to make use of the group later when it could help them very much. Also, some survivors find support groups helpful and some don't. For those who want to participate in a support group, you may be able to help them find one. This particular effort on your part will be appreciated. Work together as helpers. Remember that the murder of someone loved is a shattering experience. As a result of this death, your friend's life is under reconstruction. He or she will need to talk about it for years to come. Be the person who will encourage and allow your friend to share feelings about the homicide after other listeners have moved on. Use the name of the person who was killed when you talk to your friend. Hearing the name can be comforting and it confirms that you have not forgotten this important person who was so much a part of your friend's life. To experience grief is the result of having loved. Homicide survivors must be guaranteed this privilege. While the guidelines in this article may help, it is important to recognize that helping a homicide survivor heal will not be an easy task. You may have to give more concern, time, and love than you ever knew you had, but this helping effort will be more than worth it. About the author, Dr. Alan D. Wolfett is a noted author, educator, and practicing grief counselor. He serves as director of the Center for Loss and Life Transition in Fort Collins, Colorado, and presents dozens of grief-related workshops each year across North America. Among his books are Healing Your Grieving Heart, 100 Practical Ideas, and the Healing Your Grieving Heart Journal for Teens. For more information, write or call the Center for Loss and Life Transition, 3735 Broken Bow Road, Fort Collins, Colorado, 80526, 970-226-6050, or visit their website, www.centerforloss.com Copyright 2007 to 2020 Center for Loss and Life Transition and we would like to to thank Dr. Wolfett for his wonderful article Helping a Homicide Survivor Heal and we'll be right back.
All right, my lovely loyal listeners, that is going to be the conclusion of this episode of Just Miss Rose. We are leaving the rest area and driving on down the road. Yeah, mm-hmm, we're, we're moving on down the road. We're not going to even talk about this anymore because it disturbs my soul. And I do want everybody that does pray to pray for the Aubrey family. And let's hope and pray that those murderers are put in jail because if they're not, it's gonna, yeah, I don't even want to talk about it. But we're going to move on down the road and see you on the next episode of Just Miss Rose. And please, you guys, I appreciate your support for my sister podcast as the massage trip returns. <laughs> But who knows, when we're driving down the road on that one, we might pull up into another rest stop. But for now, you know the rules. Don't let nobody take you out your square. There's nobody that compares to you. Okay, don't compare yourself to nobody else. Other people's opinion of you is none of your business. And it doesn't matter. Because what other people think of you is not necessarily the truth. Now, is it? Now, on that note... Thank you so much for your support. I appreciate you. I love you for listening. And I'll see you on the next episode of Just Miss Rose. Good one. Have a good one. I love you for listening.